Part Six of Anything You Can Do by Randall Garrett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Six. Puck, puck, ping, puck, puck, ping, puck, puck, ping. The action in the handball court was beautiful to watch. The robot mechanism behind Bart Stanton would fire out a ball at random intervals, ranging from a tenth to a quarter of a second, bouncing them off the wall in random patterns. Stanton would retrieve the ball before it hit the ground, bounce it off the wall again to strike the target on the moving robot. Stanton had to work against a machine. No ordinary human being could have given him any competition. Puck, puck, ping! Puck, puck! Ping! Puck, puck, plunk! One miss, Stanton said to himself, but he fielded the next one nicely and slammed it home. Puck, puck, ping! The physical therapist who was standing by glanced at his watch. It was almost time. Puck, puck, ping! The machine, having delivered its last ball, shut itself off with a smug click. Stanton turned away from the handball court and walked toward the physical therapist, who held out a robe for him. "'That was good, Bart,' he said. "'Real good.' "'One miss,' Stanton said as he shrugged into the robe. "'Yeah, your timing was a shade off there, I guess. But you ran a full minute over your previous record.' Stanton looked at him. "'You reset the timer again,' he said accusingly but there was a grin on his face. The P.T. man grinned back. Yep. Come on, step into the mummy case. He waved toward the narrow niche in the wall of the court, a niche just big enough to hold a standing man. Stanton stepped in, and various instrument pickups came out of the walls and touched his body. Hidden machines recorded his heartbeat, blood pressure, brain activity, muscular tension, and several other factors. After a minute, the P.T. man said, "'Okay, Bart, let's hit the steam box.' Stanton stepped out of the niche and accompanied the therapist to another room, where he took off the robe again and sat down on the small stool inside an ordinary steam box. The box closed, leaving his head free, and the box began to fill with steam. "'Did I ever tell you what I don't like about that machine?' Bart asked as the therapist draped a heavy towel around his head. Nope. Didn't know you had any gripe. What is it? You can't gloat after you beat it. You can't walk over and pat it on the shoulder and say, Well, better luck next time, old man. It isn't a good loser, and it isn't a bad loser. The damn thing doesn't even know it lost. And if it did, it wouldn't care. <laughs> I see what you mean, said the P.T. man, chuckling. You beat the pants off it, and what do you get? Not even a case of the sulks out of it. Exactly. And what's worse, I know perfectly good and well that it's only half trying. The damn thing could beat me easily if you just turned that knob over a little more. You're not competing against the machine anyway, the therapist said. You're competing against yourself, trying to beat your own record. I know. And what happens when I can't do that anymore, either? Stanton asked. I can't just go on getting better and better forever. I've got limits, you know. 
Sure, said the therapist easily. So does a golf player. But every golfer goes out and practices by himself to try to beat his own record. Bunk. The real fun in any game is beating someone else. The big kick in golf is in winning over the other guy in a twosome. How about crossword puzzles or solitaire? Solve a crossword puzzle and you've beaten the guy who made it up. In solitaire, you're playing against the laws of chance. And even that can become pretty boring. What I'd like to do is to get out on the golf course with someone else and do my best and then lose. Honestly. With a handicap, the therapist began. Then he grinned weakly and stopped. On the golf course, Stanton was impossibly good. One long drive to the green, one putt to the cup. An easy thirty-six strokes for eighteen holes. An occasional hole in one sometimes brought him below that. An occasional worm cast or stray wind sometimes raised his score. Sure, Stanton said. A handicap. What kind of handicap do you want on a handball game with me? The P.T. man could imagine himself trying to get under one of Stanton's lightning-like returns. The thought of what would happen to his hand if he were to accidentally catch one made him wince. We wouldn't even be playing the same game, Stanton said. The therapist stepped back and looked at Stanton. You know, he said puzzledly, you sound bitter. Sure, I'm bitter. Stanton said. All I get is exercise. All the fun has gone out of it. He sighed and grinned. There was no point in worrying the P.T. man. I'll just have to stick to cards and chess if I want competition. Speed and strength don't help anything if I'm holding two pair against three of a kind. Before the therapist could say anything, the door opened, and a tall, lean man stepped into the fog-filled room. "'You are broiling a lobster?' he asked the P.T. blandly. "'Steaming a clam,' came the correction. "'When he's done, I'll pound him to chowder.' "'Excellent. I came for a clam bake,' the tall man said. "'You're early then, George,' Stanton said. He didn't feel in the mood for light humor, and the appearance of Dr. Yoritomo did nothing to improve his humor.' George Yuritomo beamed, crinkling up his heavy-lidded eyes. Ah, a talking clam. Excellent. How much longer does he have to cook? Twenty-three minutes. Why? Would you be so good as to return at the end of that time? The therapist opened his mouth, closed it, opened it again, and said, Sure, Doc, I can get some other stuff done. I'll see you then. I'll be back, Bart. He went out through the far door. After the door closed, Dr. Yuritomo pulled up a chair and sat down. New developments, he said, as you may have surmised. I guessed, Stanton said. What is it? He flexed his muscles under the caress of the hot, moist currents in the box. He wondered why it was so important that the psychologist interrupt him while he was relaxing after strenuous exercise. Yuritomo looked excited in spite of his calm. And yet Stanton knew that there couldn't be anything urgent, or Yuritomo would have acted differently. It was relatively unimportant now, anyway, Stanton thought. 
having made his decision to act on his own, had changed his reaction to the decisions of others. Yuritomo leaned forward in his chair, his thin lips in an excited smile, his black irised eyes sparkling. I had to come tell you. The sheer, utter beauty of it is too much to contain. Three times in a row was almost absolute, Bart. The probability that our hypothesis is correct was computed as straight nines to seven decimals. But now, the fourth time, straight nines to twelve decimals. Scanton lifted an eyebrow. Your oriental calm is deserting you, George. I'm not reading you. Yuritomo's smile became broader. Ah, sorry, I refer to the theory we have been discussing about the memory of the Nipe, you know? Stanton knew. Dr. Yuritomo was, in effect, one of his training instructors. Advanced alien psychology, Stanton thought. Seminar course, the mental whys and wherefores of the Nipe, or how to outthink the enemy in twelve easy lessons. Instructor... Dr. George Yoritomo. After six years of watching the recorded actions of the Nipe, Yoritomo had evolved a theory about the kind of mentality that lay behind the four baleful violet eyes in that alien head. Now he evidently had proof of that theory. He was smiling and rubbing his long, bony hands together. For George Yoritomo, that was the equivalent of hysterical excitement. We have been able to predict the behavior of the Nipe, he said, for the fourth time in succession. Great, but how does that fit in with that rule you once told me about? You know, the one about experimental animals. Ah, yes, the Harvard Law. A genetically standardized strain under precisely controlled laboratory conditions when subjected to carefully calibrated stimuli will behave as it damned well pleases. Yes, very true. But an animal could not do otherwise, could it? Only as it pleases. And it could not please to behave as something it is not, could it? Draw me a picture, Stanton said. I mean that any organism is limited in its choice of behavior. A hamster, for instance, cannot choose to behave in the manner of a rhesus monkey. A dog cannot choose to react as a mouse would. If I prick a rat with a needle, it may squeal or bite or jump, but it will not bark. Never. Nor will it leap up to a trapeze, hang by its tail, and chatter curses at me. Never. By observing an organism's reactions, one can begin to see a pattern. If you tell me that you put an armful of hay into a certain animal's enclosure, and that animal trotted over, ate the hay, and brayed, I can tell you with reasonable certainty that the animal has long ears. Do you see? You haven't been able to pinpoint the knife that easily, have you? Stanton asked. Ah, no. Uh, the more intelligent a creature is, the greater its scope of action. The nipe is far from being so simple as a monkey or a hamster. On the other hand, he smiled widely, showing bright white teeth. He is not so bright as a human being. What? 
I wouldn't say he was exactly stupid, George. What about all those prize gadgets of his? He blinked. Wipe the sweat off my forehead, will you? It's running into my eyes. Dr. Yoritomo wiped with the towel as he continued. Ah, yes, he is quite capable in that respect, my friend. It is his great memory, at once his finest asset and his greatest curse. He draped the towel around Stanton's head again and stepped back, his face unsmiling. Imagine having a near-perfect memory. Stanton's jaw muscles tightened. I think I'd like it. Yoritomo shrugged slightly. Perhaps you would, but it would not be the asset you think. Look at it soberly, my friend. The most difficult teaching job in the universe is the attempt to teach an organism something it already knows. True? Yes. If a man already knows the shape of the earth, it will do you no good to attempt to teach him. If he knows that the earth is flat, your contention that it is round will make no impression whatever. He knows, you see. He knows. Now, imagine a race with a perfect memory one which does not fade, a memory in which each bit of data is as bright and fresh as the moment it was imprinted, and as readily available as the data stored in a robot's mind. It is, in effect, a robotic memory. If you put false data into the memory bank of a computer, such as telling it that the square of two is five, you cannot correct the error simply by telling it that the square of two is four. You must first remove the erroneous data, not so? Very good. Then let us look at the Nipe race, wherever it was spawned in the universe. Let us look at their race a long time back, when they first became Nipe sapiens. Back when they first developed a true language. Each child, as it is born or hatched or budded, whatever it is they do, is taught as rapidly as possible, all the things it must know to survive. And once it is taught a thing, it knows. And if it is taught a falsehood, then it cannot be taught the truth. Wouldn't cold reality force a change? Stanton asked. Ah, in some cases, yes. In most, no. Look. Suppose a primordial nipe runs across a tiger, or whatever passes for a tiger on their planet. He has never seen a tiger before. So he does not see that this particular tiger is old, ill, and weak. He hits it on the head, and it drops dead. He takes it home for the family to feed on. How did you kill it, Papa? I walked up to it, bashed it on the noggin, and it died. That is the way to kill tigers. Yoritomo smiled. It is also a good way to kill nipes, eh? He took the towel and wiped Stanton's brow again. The error, he continued, was made when Papa Nipe generalized from one tiger to all tigers. If tigers were rare, this bit of lore might be passed on from many generations— those who learned that most tigers are not conquered by walking up to them and hitting them on the noggin undoubtedly died before they could pass this bit of information on. 
Then one day, a knipe survived the ordeal. His mind now contained conflicting information which must be resolved. He knows that tigers are killed in this way. He also knows that this one did not die. Plainly, then, this one is not a tiger. Ha! He has the solution. What does he tell his children? Why, first he tells them how tigers are killed. Then he warns them that there is an animal that looks just like a tiger, but is not a tiger. One should not make the mistake of thinking it is a tiger, or one will get badly hurt. Since the only way to tell the true tiger from the false tiger is to hit it, and since that test may prove fatal to the knife who tries it, it follows that one is better off if one avoids all animals that look like tigers. You see? Yeah, said Stanton. Some snarks are boojums. Exactly. Thank you for that allusion. I must remember to use it in my report. It seems to me to follow, Stanton said musingly, that there would be some things that they'd never learned the truth about once they'd gotten a wrong idea in their heads. Ah, indeed, it is precisely that which led me to formulate my theory in the first place. How else to explain the fact that the knipe, for all his technical knowledge, is still in the ancient ritual taboo stage of development? A savage? Yoritomo smiled. As to his savagery, I think no one on earth would disagree. But they are not the same thing. What I do mean is that the knipe is undoubtedly the most superstitious and bigoted being on the face of this planet. There was a knock at the door, and the physical therapist put his head in. Sorry to interrupt, but the clam is done. I'll give him a rub-down, Doc, and you can have him back. Excellent. Would you come up to my office, Bart, as soon as you've had your mauling? Sure, I'll be right up. Yoritomo left, and the PT man opened the steam box. Feel okay, Bart? Yeah, sure, he said abstractedly as he got up on the rub-down table and lay prone. The therapist saw that Stanton was in no mood for conversation, so he proceeded with the massage in silence. For the first time, Stanton was seeing the knife as an individual, as a person, as a thinking, feeling being. We have a great deal in common, you and I, he thought, except that you're a lot worse off than I am. I'm actually feeling sorry for the poor guy, Stanton thought, which I suppose is better than feeling sorry for myself. The only difference between us freaks is that you're a bigger freak than I am. Molly O'Grady and the Colonel's lady are sisters under the skin. Where'd that come from? Something I learned in school, I guess, like the snarks and boojums. He would answer to high or to any loud cry, such as fry me or fritter my wig. Who was that? The snark? No. Damn this memory of mine. Or can I even call it mine when I can't even use it? For now, we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. Another jack-in-the-box thought popping up from nowhere. 
The only way I'll ever get all this stuff straightened out is to get more information. And it doesn't look as though anyone is going to give it to me on a platter. The Institute seems to be awfully chary about giving information away. George even had to chase away old Robin Pound here. That feels good. Before he would talk about the knife. Can't blame him for that, I guess. They'd be hell to pay if the public ever found out that the knife has been kept as a pet for six years. How many people has he killed in that time? Twenty? Thirty? How much blood does Colonel Mannheim have on his hands? Though they know not why or what they give, still the few must die that the many may live. I wonder whether I read all that stuff complete or just browsed through a copy of Bartlett's quotations. Fragments. We've got to get organized here, brother. Colonel Mannheim's little puppet is going to cut his strings and do a Pinocchio. Okay, Bart, the PT said, giving Stanton a final slap. You're all set. See you tomorrow. Right. Give me my clothes. Stanton dressed and took the elevator up to Yoritomo's office. This section of the building was off limits to the other patients in the institute, but Stanton, the star boarder, had free reign. Not that it mattered one way or another. There wasn't any way they could have stopped him, aside from the fact that he was physically capable of going through or around almost any guards they wanted to put up. There was also the little matter of gentle blackmail. When a man is genuinely indispensable, he can work wonders by threatening to drop the whole business. He felt as though he had been slowly awakened from a long sleep. At first he had accepted as natural that he should obey orders and do as he was told without question, as though he had been drugged or hypnotized. And it's very likely they subjected me to both at one time or another, he told himself. But now his brain was beginning to function again, and the need to know was strong in his mind. Dr. Yoritomo was sitting in one of the big, soft chairs, puffing at a pipe. But he leaped to his feet when Stanton came in. Ah, about the ritual taboo culture of the Nipe. Yes, sit down, yes. So, do you find it impossible that a high technology could be present in such a system? No, I've been thinking about it. Ah, so, he sat down again. Then you will please tell me. Well, let's see. In the first place, let's take religion. In tribal cultures, religion is, ah, uh, animistic, I think the word is. Yoritomo nodded silently. There are spirits everywhere, Scanton went on. That sort of belief, it seems to me, would grow up in any race that had imagination, and the Nipes must have plenty of that, or they wouldn't have the technology they do have. Very good, very good. But what evidence have you that this technology was not given them by some other race? I hadn't thought of that. Stanton stared into space for a moment, then nodded his head. Of course, it would take too long for another race to teach it to them, it wouldn't be worth the trouble unless this hypothetical other race killed off all the adult nipes and started the little ones off fresh. 
and if that happened, their ritual taboo system would have disappeared too. That argument is imperfect, Yoritomo said, but it will do for the moment. Go on with the religion. Okay, religious beliefs are not subject to pragmatic tests. That is, the spiritual beliefs aren't. Any belief that could be disproven would eventually die out. But beliefs in ghosts or demons or angels or life after death aren't disprovable. So as a race increases its knowledge of the physical world, its religion tends to become more and more spiritual. Agreed, yes. But how do you link this with ritual taboo? Well, once a belief gains a foothold, it's hard to wipe out, even among humans. Among Nipes, it would be well-nigh impossible. Once a code of ritual and social behavior was set up, it becomes permanent. For example, Yoritomo urged. Well, shaking hands, for example. We still do that, even if we don't have it fixed solidly in our heads that we must do it. I suppose it would never occur to a Nipe not to perform such a ritual. Just so. Yoritomo agreed vigorously. Such things, once established, would tend to remain. But it is a characteristic of a ritual taboo system that it resists change. How then do you account for their high technological achievements? The pragmatic engineering approach, I imagine. If a thing works, it is usable. If not, it isn't. Very good. Now it is my turn to lecture. He put his pipe in an ashtray and held up a long bony finger. Firstly, we must remember that the knipe is equipped with an imagination. Secondly, he has in his memory a tremendous amount of data already at hand. He is capable of working out theories in his head, you see. Like the ancient Greeks, he finds no need to test such theories unless his thinking indicates that such an experiment would yield something useful. Unlike the Greeks, he has no aversion to experiment, but he sees no need for useless experiment either. Oh, he would learn, yes, but once a given theory proved workable, how resistant he would be to a new theory, how long, uh, how incredibly long, it would take such a race to achieve the technology the Nipe now has. Hundreds of thousands of years, said Stanton. Yoritomo shook his head briskly. Puh, longer, much longer, he smiled with satisfaction. I estimate that the Nipe race first invented the steam engine not less than ten million years ago. He kept on smiling into the dead silence that followed. After a long minute, Scanton said, What about atomic energy? Oh, at least two million years ago. I do not think they have had the interstellar drive more than 50,000 years. No wonder our pet nipe is so patient, Stanton said wonderingly. I wonder what their individual lifespan is. Not long in comparison, said Yoritomo. Perhaps no longer than our own, perhaps five hundred years. Considering their handicaps, they have done quite well, quite well indeed for a race of illiterate cannibals. How's that again? 
Stanton realized that the scientist was quite serious. Hadn't it occurred to you, my friend, that they must be cannibals? And that they are very nearly illiterate? No, Stanton admitted. It hadn't. The knife, like man, is omnivorous. Specialization tends to lead any race up a blind alley, and dietary restrictions are a particularly pernicious form of specialization. A lion would starve to death in a wheat field. A horse would perish in a butcher shop full of steaks. A man will survive as long as there's something around to eat, even if it's another man. Also, man, early in his career as top dog on earth, began using a method of increasing the viability of the race by removing the unfit. It survives today in some societies. Before and immediately after the Holocaust, there were still primitive societies on earth which made a rather hard ordeal out of the rite of passage. The ceremony that enabled a boy to become a man, if he passed the tests. A few millennia ago, a boy was killed outright if he failed, and eaten. End of Part 6